3. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, easy to find. Um, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, just a note, I am actually catching a flight early this afternoon to head to Minnesota. And I will be there for the next week. I have to travel one week a year for the, the, the master's program I'm in. And so this is that week, so I'll be in Minnesota. So, um, yeah, so just want to let you know I'm not like, well, I am kind of jetting out. I'm leaving on a jet plane. So we'll leave after the sermon. So, um, so if you have your Bibles, I uh, would love to have you follow along. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast to it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I hope uh, as we are in our third week of this series, seven letters, uh, exploring Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, these letters that are written to seven real churches in Asia Minor. These were groups of disciples of Jesus who were trying to be faithful in the midst of all sorts of struggles. Uh, Some churches were facing persecution. Um, Last week, we talked about the church Smyrna um, from chapter 2. And Smyrna was a struggling, persecuted church. Uh, They were a church that was facing threats from outside. As they were declaring, Jesus is Lord, but the culture around them said, no, 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 Caesar is Lord. And so to be a part of the church was to risk your life. And so Jesus comes to them and he speaks to this persecuted church, Smyrna, But today, the letter to Sardis, there is no persecution. There's no record of persecution happening to them. They are actually living um, in a lot of comfort and a lot of wealth. Sardis was a very wealthy, prosperous city. And so now you have a group, a, a church in Sardis that isn't facing threat of persecution. They are actually under threat of becoming comfortably numb. Like I've just sort of the soul-numbing existence, the lack of suffering. So to a church in Smyrna that's surrounded by death, you have a church that is fully alive and Jesus comforts them in the midst of their threat and persecution. But here in Sardis, you have a church that is surrounded by the abundance of life and they are spiritually dead. And do you know what Jesus does? He doesn't comfort them, he afflicts them. He speaks harsh words. Uh, Sometimes the role of Jesus is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. To sort of stir things up a little bit. To say, wake up! You're dead! Like, you you have a great reputation, but you're actually spiritually dead. There's there's some hard stuff that Jesus says in this letter. 
Um, now, it, we'll take a quick poll, show of hands. Of these two experiences, persecuted church where there's a threat on your life or a comfortable church where you really don't have a whole lot to worry about, which one do you think the church in Hutchinson, Reno County, tends to resonate more with? With the persecuted church? Raise your hand. With the comfortable church? Raise your hand. Yeah. That, uh, you know, for many of us, we, we don't have a threat of persecution. Now, there are churches, lots of churches around the world who do. But these, there are these words of warning that I think if we have ears to hear, they will resonate with us to say we, uh, we maybe face the same temptations that this church in Sardis did in, in more ways than we think. And so we hear these words of Jesus. Now, uh, Jesus is revealed in Revelation. So we're talking about how is Jesus revealed? What are the images of the risen Christ? So uh, images of the risen Christ. Jesus starts out in verse 1 and he says, I'm the one... These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So you get this image of Jesus, the living Christ, um, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What in the world does that mean? Well, the seven stars, we're told in Revelation 1, they represent, it's not like Jesus is like holding seven literal stars, right? They're all images that point to something bigger. I, when I was a, uh, right out of high school, I worked for my uncle who was a mason, and uh, he always kept the radio tuned to a country station. And so I have all these country lyrics, like, just like, they're just filed away in my brain. And so there was this Tracy Bird song in the mid-1990s called, I Tip My Hat to the Keeper of the Stars. Do you know that song? Um, so that was the image I got in my mind, like, Jesus is like the keeper of the stars. But it's not seven literal stars. The seven stars, we're told in Revelation 1, are the seven churches. They're the church, the church around the world. Jesus holds us in his hand. That's a pretty cool image, right? That Jesus is the one who holds the church. The church belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to the pastor. It doesn't belong to the members. The church belongs to Jesus. He is Lord of the church. And so as a church, what we do is we submit to him. Now, we submit to him as Lord. And we trust that he's going to lead us and he's going to be with us and he's going to give us strength to do what he asks us to do. Jesus has the power to hold the church. This is the image. He's the one who holds the seven stars. But he also holds the seven spirits. Sometimes this is translated the sevenfold spirit of God. Um, the sevenfold spirit of God. Um, the number seven throughout the Bible is used as a number of completeness, wholeness. How many days are there in a week? Seven. Because God worked for six days and rested for one. This is a complete week. And so Jesus is seen not only as holding the church, his body, but also holding his life-giving spirit. The word spirit is, in Greek is the word pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumatic. It means breath, spirit, or wind. And, and the spirit's role is to bring life. Breath in your body brings life to you. It takes things that are, uh, are dead and makes them alive. This is what the Spirit of God does. You remember the opening pages of Scripture. So we're in that last book in the Bible. If you go all the way back to the first book in the Bible, to Genesis 1 and 2, especially in Genesis 2, you have this picture of God as like this master sculptor. Like he takes these like, he, he, he takes the dirt and he forms this hunk of dirt, um, and he takes it, and 
and he breathes his spirit, right? He puts his spirit, his breath into it, and this, 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 this hunk of dirt becomes a living being. Um, the human comes from the humus, right? The, in, in Hebrew, it's the Adama is the dirt. And out of the Adama, when God forms it and breathes his spirit, it becomes Adam. Right? That's what we are. Like we are this strange combination of, of, of sort of dirt, of, of, of dust of the earth, but the breath of God, and it's the breath of God that animates, that brings life. That's what the Spirit of God does. A couple of weeks ago, on the first Sunday in June, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is that day we look back and we celebrate the birth of the church when Jesus blew the wind of his spirit on those disciples meeting in the upper room and, and brought them to life, spiritual life, filled them, took them from being fear-filled disciples to being bold witnesses of the living Christ. This is what the Spirit does. It takes dead things and it turns them alive. Jesus reveals himself as the one who holds the church and holds the seven fold spirit of God. He is the one who brings life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says it this way, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He will take the dust and he'll turn it to life because of the spirit who lives in you. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is how he reveals himself. Um, so now to this church in Sardis, he gives these critiques. He, he, he sort of levels these critiques. And um, we'll sort of read it again. He says, I know your deeds, uh, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds to be unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast to it and repent. The word repent just means to turn around. You're going this direction, change your mind to go this direction. Return. That's what repent means. Um, turn around. And if you do not repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So this is, this is a critique that Jesus has for the church that he holds in his hands. He says, you're, you look great. Man, you guys look great. This is what he's saying to the church in Sardis. You look like you're fully alive. Great reputation. The problem is there's no life in you. For whatever reason, they had become disconnected from the life of God in Jesus. How many of you have ever been to Madame Tussauds uh, Wax Museum? Anybody? Okay, a couple people. Uh, uh, like 15 years ago, I visited some friends in London, and we got to visit Madame Tussauds. And, and maybe you've seen pictures of this online, where you, like, they make these um, celebrities out of wax that look so lifelike. You could not tell the difference between Usain Bolt actually standing there and the wax figure. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, so you can go to Madame Tussauds and you can take a picture with these celebrities and be like, hey, look at that, post it on your Instagram account. Um, and nobody will know the difference, right? That's what Madame Tussauds uh, is. It, it has all of, these, all of these figures that look so life-like, but they're wax. There's no life in them. Sardis is kind of the Madame Tussauds of churches. You, you look good. You have this great reputation. You look like you're so alive. The problem is there's no life in you. So Jesus says, um, he uses this, uh, this image of like, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come, and the word thief isn't like somebody who's going to like violently like mug you, take money from you. It's like somebody who's going to slip in and slip out and you'll never even notice it's gone. He says, if you don't wake up, 
You're sort of asleep right now. If you don't wake up, you're, you're sort of the, your position as a church is just going to be gone. It's going to be taken from you. Uh, what Jesus is doing here is really pretty cool because the history of, of Sardis, the city of Sardis, a um, little history lesson, there's this guy named uh, Croesus who about 600 years before this, this letter was written was a Lydian king who conquered the city of Sardis and sort of built it up. Croesus, after he conquered the city, he discovered gold, or they discovered gold in the city. And so he became filthy rich, right? Uh, so they start minting coins. They're one of the first to learn how to spin wool. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, rich is Croesus? Like he is as rich as Croesus. Have you heard that phrase? So there's this phrase <laughs> called rich is Croesus. You can check that out. Um, so famous, famous king. Um, so what he does is he builds the city of Sardis up on top of Mount Tamolis. Um, and so you can see this wall, this high wall up on top. You can still see the bricks and stuff if you're close enough. On top of a 1,500-foot sheer rock face. That's where they build the city, up on top of the mountain. And so the city, like, well, well guarded with this wall on top of the mountain was thought to be unconquerable. You could not touch Sardis. And so one time, uh, the Persians, they invade, and, and King Cyrus, known as Cyrus the Virus, comes in, and uh, he's not really known as Cyrus the Virus, but now he is. He comes in, he leads his army in, and they surround the city of Sardis, but they can't touch it. They can't do anything to it. And so they're, they're just sort of camping out. And there's this soldier, this enemy soldier, and he's like, sort of camped out, hiding a little bit under a rock or behind a rock. And he's just watching, just sort of observing the wall. And Croesus, one of his soldiers, is, uh, is just kind of, you know, doing his thing up on top of the wall. They're sort of untouchable, you know. So he, he leans over the wall and his helmet falls off. And his helmet rolls down the hill. And so he, like, you know, looks around like you do, like, do-do-do, nothing going on here. And so he, op- he goes down, crawls off the wall, opens a gate in the wall, like this door, closes it behind him, crawls down the rock face, gets his helmet, puts it back on, walks back up, closes the gate, nothing ever happened. This soldier who's hiding in the distance watching thinks, there must be a trail up the hill. So uh, he watches carefully where he went, where he went into the wall. He goes back to Cyrus and he says, hey, I think there's a way in. Says, sounds good to me. That night, under the cover of darkness, they sneak up that trail into the city and take it by surprise, like a thief in the night. Twice in the history of Sardis, they were conquered by surprise. While they were comfortable behind their walls, untouchable, uh, you know, riches creases in this place, they were taken by surprise. And Jesus says, that's a little bit like your spiritual lives to the church there. He says, it's like you're going to be taken by surprise. It's like you're living so comfortably. It's like you don't have a care in the world. And what's starting to happen is your defenses are going down and you're vulnerable and you don't even realize it. Wake up, he says. And there's this word of warning. Um, Are there any ways in which you are becoming comfortably numb in your life with God? Like, if you're honest, is this sort of like, just sort of surrounded by these walls, surrounded by comfort? And if you're really honest, like maybe you're flirting with something that is kind of a, it doesn't seem like a big deal, 
I mean, it just seems like a, it seems like a little thing, like I'm just going to go down and re- retrieve the helmet, no big deal. But if you're really honest with yourself, the dashboard lights are going off. Something, something's wrong here. And there's this call from the Spirit inside of you that says, wake up. Wake up. Be alert. Uh, there's a danger here. I think this, this word, it speaks to us. It, it jars us awake to the reality that we are maybe more vulnerable than we think. Um, so, I think we have a lot in common with the church in Sardis. They were, they were amazing. They, um, they, it seems like, from all the evidence, they really wanted to be a church in the community. Like, they wanted to plant the good news of Jesus in the common ground of the culture, the pagan Roman culture. They didn't want to, like, build their church somewhere out in a cornfield somewhere outside of Sardis. They wanted to be right where the stuff was happening so they could have an impact on the culture. They wanted to be missionaries where they live, work, and play, right? I mean, that's what it seems like. And the way we know this is because you have uh, this. This was an old marketplace. You'd walk down the street, and there were these shops and you had uh, one, you know, these shops that were, were pagan shop owners, and they were selling idols of, of uh, um, Kibbola and Artemis, these god, false pagan goddesses. And they would sell these, these articles in one shop, but the shop right next to them had a cross on the door. And the shop right next to that might have had a menorah. It was a Jewish shop. And so you have these Christians and Jews right there in the middle of the marketplace, and they were, they were proclaiming, Jesus is Lord right here. Here. It's a beautiful thing. There are actually pictures of like these were old pagan tombstones. And they would take the pagan inscriptions and rub them off and put a cross over top of it. How cool is that? That the church is saying, no, 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 we are reclaiming this for Jesus. Jesus is Lord right here in the middle of the community. Um, there was a, in Roman culture, there was this place called the gymnasium. And the gymnasium was like the epicenter of pagan culture. And so what you would do is you'd go into this huge space, and right in the middle of it was like this big grassy area where you would train your body. Um, so Greeks, Romans, they trained their bodies in the nude. Naked. Um, and so that's what they did. Um, and because they felt like the human being was the center of the world, and so they wanted to just like see the human form. And so you had this gymnasium. Then you had on the other side of it, that structure that's still standing was a university. It's where you learned pagan philosophy and things like that. There were also, in, inside this big building called the gymnasium, there were, um, there were like places where you could get massages, and also then there was like a public bath. Um, and so you can just sort of guess, like what was going on in these places. Um, but the interesting thing is right here in Sardis, Back one slide. Do you see that place over on the left side? There was a synagogue in the middle of the gymnasium. Like there was this group of Jews who said, no, 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 we have good news and we're going to plant it right here in the middle of the most pagan place in town. Is that, is that cool? They had, they had a, a fountain at the front. As you walked into the synagogue, they had a fountain where you would use for ceremonial washing Next slide. And it was used as a public fountain. It was listed as like a community space that you could come. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Like, we want our space to be used. We want to be a community space. This is a great, great deal. There was also one other thing. Um, There was a church. Well, next slide. Um, The goddess that was mostly worshipped in Sardis was the goddess uh, Kibbola. 
uh, but she was also called Artemis. And there was a temple out, just outside of Sardis that was, um, that was one of the seven largest temples in the ancient world. And do you see that little building down in the front corner here? Can I take a guess what that is? It's a church. Now, there's a pretty good chance that the temple maybe wasn't being used anymore at this time, by the time the church was built. But this group of Christians built the church on the temple grounds. You had to walk into the temple of Artemis to get inside the building where the church met. Like, how crazy that, like, maybe there's this group of Christians who said, we're going to go to this pagan place, and we're going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord right here in the middle of it. I mean, you have this really, like, it feels like they were so passionate about taking the good news of Jesus to the most pagan places in town. But then Jesus says to them, you're actually vulnerable here. You see, like, as we want to be missionaries in a culture that is not following Jesus, and as we, like, build relationships and we go to these environments where Jesus is not Lord, and we, you know, we're there and we put ourselves there and we build relationships and we want to plant the gospel in that place in those lives, we have to admit that we're also vulnerable there. Because culture is actually moving like a current. And if we step into the deeper and deeper waters, there is this risk of being pulled out to sea. And unless we are anchored into like sort of the solid base of a missional community, a Jesus people who keep us anchored from just sort of getting pulled away, we are vulnerable. And, and here's the thing. If we lose the only uniqueness we have which is that life is found in Jesus, then we lose our ability to have any impact at all. Like there's this warning to those of us who are saying, no, we want to be missionaries where we live, work, and play. If we are not connected to missional community, we're in danger. There's this risk of just being pulled out to sea. There was this story uh, on the news last week. Did you guys see this from Ocean City, Florida? These two kids who got swept out into a, a rip current, riptide, rip current, something like that. And so they're out in deep water and they're drowning. And so their family kind of comes out to save them. But now there are like nine people, I think it was, who are out there at risk of drowning. And so this group of, of people there on the beach link arms like 80 people and go out and form this human chain to reach them and save them. Like some of us like really nobly, like we want to, we want to like Bring our friends to Christ. And that is wonderful. Like, please don't lose that, but also realize you're at risk. Like, because you can have an impact on them, but they can also have an impact on you. And culture pulls us away from Christ. And unless, like, this is this great image of the church, this is what we do. We keep each other founded on Christ, the living Christ. And we, we sort of bring these people to safety. This um, I, I, I really resonate with this, with this message to the church in Sardis because I think it speaks really uniquely to us. Um, and I hope you feel that. I, I hope you, you never stop dreaming about ways that we as a church can reach our community. That, that we can just be in people's lives. That we can love people where they are on their turf, not just inviting them to come here. But may we stay connected to each other. People who are going to keep us connected to Christ. Because Jesus says these words. He says, wake up. 
Wake up. You're more vulnerable than you realize. Wake up. Jesus isn't scared of a dead church. He says, if you can wake up, turn around, come back to me. If you turn around and come back to me, I will breathe my life-giving spirit on you and you will wake up and be who I've created you to be. God, we ask that you would, if we are comfortable and at risk of just drifting out to sea and, and losing our connection to you, God, we pray that you would speak words that, uh, that we need to hear, that are maybe painful to hear, but that you would wake us up. That the, this thing we're flirting with, this path that we're on, it's actually pulling us out to sea. So God, we, we want to wake up. We want to hear your spirit. God, we want to turn around. God, we desperately want to be your people in this community that you love God, we want to be a lifeline that connects people to you, but God, we need each other and we need your spirit to give us life and strength, God, so that we have something to offer, a life-giving connection to you, our Savior and our Lord. God, we pray that you would just lead us as a church, that we would be wise and faithful to what you're asking us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.